Hi, Dan. How are you? Question mark. (laughs) (laughs) I've never felt more excited. Exclamation point. Okay, moving on. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share Google's research on the top five features of effective teams and how they can impact your lab. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 77. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Lucky episode 77. Is that lucky? I don't think it is. I don't know. They're all lucky. We made it another week, so... Yeah, that's right. Here we are. Lucky us. Uh, Man, summer has been tricky to keep getting these episodes out on time. Yeah, every every single moment is spoken for, it feels like. Yeah, but uh, I thought summer is supposed to be more relaxed and laid back. I think the difference is when it's winter time and it gets dark super early, you just finish, you know, you don't go out, you don't see people, you just go home and I think that's true. And travel, you know, it gets, it gets tricky, but we're here now, Dan, and we have a nice crisp IPA according to this can in front of me. What do you got? You brought this. Yeah, this is, uh, and I'll have to make sure to pronounce it right. It is the Bozen Ale. So it looks like Boat Swain. It looks like Boat Swain. That's, yeah. Boat Swain. Uh, sorry, this is the Bozen Double IPA uh, India Pale Ale Twin Screw Steamer. Um, I'm looking at my etymology dictionary right now, and that is an Old English uh, word for boat boy. So there you go, Boat Swain, Bozen. Okay, so I'm a little confused by this beer. I'm, I'm skeptical, Dan. Did you taste it? I did taste it. Do you want my tasting notes first before I express my skepticism? Yeah, please, please give me your tasting notes. So first of all, as the can says, this is a double IPA, and I certainly believe that you know those high gravity beers certainly have this this sort of heavy sweetness to them, or something. It is this a little thickness. bit sweeter. It's not as hoppy, I would say, as you know. I don't get a, a super strong bitterness out of this one. It doesn't have that piney taste or that soapy taste as much to me. No, not at all. But you certainly a, a little bit. Uh, I think the higher alcohol gives you a little bit more sweetness. Um, but I can definitely tell I would not want to kick back two or three of those in rapid would succession. Would not be a good idea. Yeah, that yeah. would that would be a lot, I think. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting this bubblegum essence. This was really? This bubble you gum actually get some, that, much, that much sweetness out of it? Did you recently have some well, bubblegum? Well, you know, it's not bad, but I have to say, I'm, I'm more of a session IPA guy than a double than IPA the, guy. The yeah, the high-gravity beers do not... Do not agree with me typically, so I tend to avoid them. But you know, the the flavor is nice. I could sip on this for a while, but um, I don't know. These are I tend to avoid these. Let me tell you tell you why I'm selling you this one, Josh. Well, do you do you want my theory? Yeah, I bet you have a theory. Well, Let's hear it. here's my skepticism. Okay, so very stylized can. Okay. Um, very, some thought went into the design and the 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 Lo- font choice of looks old timey kind has of has this old timey look. A very very well thought out. But it nowhere, you know, most of the time these these craft beers, the name of the actual brewery is somewhere emblazoned on, on the can, and and I don't really see that. And actually, what does it matter what bathtub it came out of, really? <laughs> but then I see in small in small letters under the government warning label, it says brewed and canned by Ryan Rhinelander Brewing Company in Wisconsin. Okay, does that does that give away where it came from? Uh, well, Wisconsin they do good beer, so that's a good thing. Uh, but also, you know, Dan, you have a, a 
a tendency to pick up uh, Trader Joe's alcohols. I'm going to guess this is a Trader Joe's Yeah, the beer. trouble is you know that I'm an incurable <laughs> cheapskate, right? This this beer was like uh, $4.99 for a six-pack. Okay, so you're you're exactly correct. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've, I've I, had to, I had to buy it because how could you pass by? I mean, normally you go into the you go into the grocery store and like a reasonable tasting beer that doesn't that just isn't like horse urine is ten ninety nine for a six pack, right? So that's true. So so I'm trying to bring something to our grad student audience here. Normally you're no. paying a dollar eighty something per beer. No, and, you're right. And here here's what I'm giving you. Not only are you not paying a dollar eighty something per beer. Because you've got the eight point four percent alcohol, you should drink half as many of these. You really should on drink your, half on as your, many of these. <laughs> the day you get home, right? Yeah, that's so true. now you're talking forty three cents value. Yeah, good value. So was that pretty close on the four ninety nine? Oh, it's precisely four ninety nine. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> that's so funny. Though I though I did mention double IPAs are not my thing, um, and therefore this beer would not be my first choice. I've had some double IPAs, and as far as double IPAs go, this is a decent specimen. I feel like if... And they have some other varieties. Uh, This is the one that I picked up for tonight. But I feel like if I gave you this $4.99 per six-pack beer and a different $4.99 per six-pack beer, you would choose this one. I feel feel like the the alternatives in that price point are uh, meant to be taken out of a paper bag. Brewed in Wisconsin. They know know how to make beer there, so... There it is. Hey, well, maybe uh, if if you'd like to hear us drink uh, better beer, maybe we can get some more Patreon supporters on the show. That sounds like an idea. I'll still probably have this stuff, but that's fine. That's probably true. Uh, Speaking of, Dan, I did want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become a patron of the show and support what we do, you can go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd and become a supporter of the show. We love it when you do it. Thank you. All right, Dan, are you ready for some science in the news? Hit me. Okay, Dan, I have some rapid-fire uh, science in the news. I came across so many things since our last episode. I'm just going to throw these at you. I'll brace myself. Go ahead. First one, and clearly the biggest news, we have an eclipse coming up. Yeah, I don't think I'm ready. Oh, I, I am totally not ready. Uh, so this is happening, I would have to think most of our listeners know that this is happening. Yeah, I, it, it's certainly been in the news a lot. I feel like as a scientist, I'm required to go look at it. I remember I remember seeing one when I was maybe in middle school. I think you're right. And I being really that. super unimpressed with it. But I'm, I'm ready to try again with, uh, with a new eye. Well, this is a big one. So it's happening on Monday, August 21st. And according to an interactive map on NASA's website, where we are, Dan, right here in Durham, North Carolina, we are supposed to get 92.6% coverage of the sun. That's that's pretty good. And that's a lot of sun coverage, Josh. <laughs> Is that good? I guess that's good, yeah. That, I mean, that's that should be, as far as eclipses go, that's yeah. about as good as it gets, I think. Yeah, I should go around looking for the witch that has blotted out our sun, I guess. That's that's going to be my activity for the <laughs> eclipse. Uh, so, 1.15, it begins. 2.43 p.m. is max, max coverage. I'm actually teaching a class until 1 p.m., so I guess we'll then head outside and stare directly at the face of the sun. Do not do that. Would you please not do that? Well, you know, I'm a little worried about this because I'm not prepared. I haven't purchased any special glasses or anything, Dan. But I was researching, uh, went on, was going to go on to Amazon and get some glasses to look at the eclipse. And I saw all these links for news articles about 
all these warnings and safety issues put out by NASA on fake uh, eclipse glasses that are flooding the market right now. Yeah, this seems like the perfect time to flood the market with fake eclipse. Uh, like, if you are a scammer, you've got a huge demand. You put a little piece of, uh, it's not foil, it's like mylar or something with a coating on it. Nobody knows what it's actually doing. People buy them. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you are a producer of these glasses, you make the same amount of money if they're real glasses or fake glasses. Yeah, I can't see UV light to know whether or not my retinas are being well, burned. I, I mean, I guess as long as it uh, is no matter to you whether people permanently injure their sight. Right, precisely. <laughs> yeah, if you would like to make some money, that's... If that's inconsequential yeah, if that's to inconsequential, you. that's inconsequential, do it. Um, but yeah, actually, I saw, uh, according to this, this article I was reading, it said some of these... Some of these bogus companies are going so far as printing. There's this. Uh, what what you typically want to look for on these these sun viewing glasses are the International Organization for Standardization their standard, and so you're looking for something that says it's ISO one two three one two dash two compliant. Oh, dash two. I see. <laughs> but some of these bogus companies are actually printing the ISO logo and certification label on these glasses. And in some cases, they're even putting in like a little pamphlet with, with fake data on how the glasses were tested. <laughs> you got to up your game if you're going to scam people during the eclipse. I feel like if you're going to go to that much trouble to... <laughs> make people think they're fake you could just make the real glasses right i have no idea Uh, so anyway uh if you're gonna be if you plan on viewing the eclipse and you should try i mean this is a cool thing that doesn't happen very often make sure you do your due diligence in in your your viewing apparatus uh nasa NASA has brands that they recommend although maybe people are spoofing those brands who can say you know i would recommend if you can if you live near a planetarium or a museum that's hosting some sort of official viewing event that might be a a good safe way uh you and your your loved ones could check it out i feel like if you work in a lab and you have one of those uv light tables you ought to check out whether your glasses work is that possible (laughs) uh (laughs) you say you should take your glasses stare at the uv light box stick your face in there yeah uh i had a friend who did that actually he didn't realize that you needed protection and the the cover on the top of it didn't wasn't clear. Well, they didn't put the cover down. I mean, they were uh, you know, staring right at the. You learned that lesson once. All right, Dan. So that's the eclipse. But I have a couple other things I wanted to throw at you that I thought were pretty interesting. So we have talked about machine learning in the past. We sure have. So Dan, um, we made no errors on it at all. <laughs> we made we a lot of errors about machine accurate learning in our description, and we heard about it. Uh, but Dan, just just as a reminder, if I wanted to know how machine learning works, what's sort of the general principle behind how machine learning works? Uh, the steps typically are: you get a training data set, mm-hmm. you feed it to whichever algorithm you're interested in that might solve this problem for you, and you have a test data set, mm-hmm. and you see how well uh, the algorithm predicts something it's never seen before. Yeah, and I mean, I think if I understand correctly, the the machine, the computer can learn. If you say, okay, this data set has this parameter. You have to give it, you have to give it a, a data set that has the answers in it. Yes. Typically, and this is, mm-hmm. this is one, one way of doing it, and not everybody does it this way, and there are lots of different ways. But one way is you give it a test set or a training set with the answers included. It learns how to get to those answers with that data. Mm-hmm. And then you give it a set with no answers and it tries to, to do that work for you. Yeah. So there's been a lot of interest um, by certain people in using machine learning or in using machines, I guess I should say, in understanding and, dis- and extracting meaning from human speech. 
That seems like a, a useful thing. Siri tries to do that. Yeah, absolutely. But one big tripping point um, for machines has been detecting sarcasm. What is sarcasm, Josh? I'm not, I'm not familiar with this term. <laughs> Very nice. The computer just exploded. <laughs> there are pieces everywhere. No, but this is exactly the problem. So with, with sarcasm, and especially in a lot of cases, we're talking about in, not in spoken word, but even in written word, your meaning is the exact opposite of what you're saying. And so machines have trouble with that. So basically, at the end of this film where the robots are rising up and about to kill all humans, I'm going to show up on the scene and save humanity with some sarcastic turn of phrase. Oh, yeah. Kill me now. Sure. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Really, really impressed with you guys right now. (laughs) Sarcasm is our last hope. I didn't know I could be a superhero, but this is the way I'm going to get there. Well, it it turns out there are some researchers who who recently published something called the self-annotated Reddit corpus, or SARC. And so these were some researchers, including some grad students from Princeton University. Oh, it's like a pun inside a inside <laughs> an acronym. I like Pretty that. nice, yeah. Huh? SARC. Uh, so anyway, what what they did, as you can tell, this had to do with mining Reddit for sarcastic comments okay and so so this corpus this this group of comments they they were able to extract 1.3 million sarcastic statements which is 10 times more than any previous data set and and actually many more instances of non-sarcastic statements as a way to to train the machine i guess at least twice as many probably if it's reddit well, actually, I've got some data on that that I thought was okay. pretty interesting. So you're a Reddit user. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like Reddit. As am I. So so what they did, their raw data, they actually looked at around 500 to 600 million total comments, of which 1.3 million were sarcastic. So you could figure out the percent of Reddit comments that are sarcastic. All came from one guy who was <laughs> just really a pain in the butt. Yeah, so so actually, I think it, it turned out when, they, when all was said and done, uh, they found that approximately 0.927% of the comments that they, they looked at and they validated were sarcastic. So that's significant. I mean, if you're trying to interpret human thought and speech, if 1% of your statements are not what they seem, that could, that could be a problem. Yeah, and one reason this was actually pretty great, uh, well, a couple, a couple advantages Reddit had, okay? So, so previous to, to this analysis, the, the next best shot that, or, or I guess the next best attempt researchers had made to study sarcastic text was using Twitter data, all right? And so they tried to accomplish something similar by looking, at, looking for hashtags like, hashtag sarcasm or hashtag sarcastic tweet. And, you know, that was okay. But according to, to these authors, Twitter has much more low quality language than, than Reddit. No. <laughs> Wait, that was sarcastic. I cannot get out of this. <laughs> Actually, yeah. you know what? They really wanted a larger data set. They could just get the transcript of our show. Transcript of the Hello PhD podcast. <laughs> and every time Dan speaks... 87% of these comments are sarcastic. <laughs> what percent of my comments versus your comments are well, sarcastic? Yeah. It's 100%, yeah, and, and none. Well, and it actually turned out a vastly smaller percentage of Twitter comments were sarcastic than Reddit comments. So only 0.002% of Twitter comments were sarcastic, whereas 0.927%, as I mentioned, of the Reddit comments were sarcastic. And and another benefit of Reddit is that, unlike Twitter, you tend to have the sarcastic comment right there in the context of 
of the conversation. So it's very easy to validate whether or not the, that they meant the opposite that it was meant to be said, sarcastic. Yeah. And the big thing, Dan, is like I mentioned with Twitter, they were able to pull out these sarcastic tweets by looking for hashtag sarcastic or sarcastic tweet. You may know this already, Dan, you probably do, but on Reddit, a way that a user might signify sarcastic comment is by ending that comment with slash s. Oh, or slash sarcasm. So what are they going to do? I mean, here's my question. Yep. What are they going to do with this? What they were doing and what they're doing here was now that they have, have pulled... So this is now the largest data set. And they actually did go and validated, looked for the percent of false positives and false negatives. So now what their contribution is, is they have this available data set that if you were someone interested in training some machines to learn about sarcasm or to recognize sarcasm, you could access this new sarcastic data set uh, as a way to, to train your I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a prediction about the future. Okay. I think the computers will change the way that we talk, not they'll learn to understand how we talk. So I can imagine if, if I sarcastically say like, yeah, that Uber can pick me up half past never. <laughs> And the Uber never picks me up because the computer <laughs> doesn't know what I'm talking about. I would stop being sarcastic. I feel. I don't know. Maybe that's not right. Well, I guess you're presuming at some point we stop talking to other human beings and we only talk to... Hasn't computer. that already happened? <laughs> I feel like that's already happened. Well, I do. It's funny. I, I talk to a lot of human beings through text-to-speech, so... <laughs> Hi, Dan. How are you? Question mark. <laughs> oh I'm, so, I'm so excited to see you, exclamation point. We're going to do the entire Hello PhD <laughs> podcast in that format. I have never felt more excited, exclamation point. Okay, moving on. All right, Dan, I got one more. I know we're hanging out here on the Science and News, but this is a good one. All right, Dan, you you have been involved in, in the energy industry. I have, yes. And so I read I read this one this week. So, Oh, and this is actually really great. So you're into energy, and you also spent time in Kentucky. That is also true. Two yeah. two facts. Have you been to the Kentucky Coal Museum in Harlan County? You know I haven't. Well. That's surprising, but I have not. Did you know there was a Kentucky Coal Museum? I didn't. Yes, no, so, I hadn't heard of it. So this is a public museum uh, that is dedicated to uh, the history of, of coal and the importance of coal in our country. But uh, recently, earlier this year, the Kentucky Coal Museum has installed 80 solar panels on their roof as a way to save money on energy costs. And those solar panels are, are collecting the sun to heat up coal, I assume? <laughs> Is that how that works? Nope. Uh, purely to cut down the electric bill. So the Coal Museum's electric bill is around $2,100 per month. And, and the uh, museum, I guess, being a public attraction, it was really hard to turn a profit because of that expensive electric bill. So with these new solar panels, they are expected to save between eight and $10,000 per year. And actually, they interviewed uh, Trey Sexton, who is involved with Bluegrass Solar, the company that was approached about the project. And I guess when the Coal Museum approached him about putting solar panels on their roof, uh, his comment was, really, the first time I sat down and was talking about it with everybody, I was like, are you for real? They're really going to go for this? <laughs> are you trolling me, Coal Museum? <laughs> this isn't funny. Uh, but this is a real thing. And actually, what's what's kind of neat about the story, not only is the Coal Museum, which, again, is in a, a fairly a small town in Harlan County, Kentucky, the, uh, the power board in their town, which is a municipal utility, is actually going to also save money by pulling extra energy generated by the solar panels from the museum um, into their own grid. So it's going to benefit a lot of people in this coal town. Uh, by having these solar panels on the roof of the coal museum. 
documenting the birth of coal and the death of coal all in one museum. <laughs> well, yeah, I poked around just a little bit online because there's been a lot of talk in our national discussion about coal jobs and, and the coal miners. So it turns out solar jobs now outnumber coal jobs two to one nationally. But the important thing to remember is from state to state, those numbers vary widely. Yeah, it's not all concentrated in the same places. Yeah, so, you know, it's, I thought it was good to see some of these newer forms of energy, uh, some of these renewable energies like solar starting to spread to places, um, even in the heart of coal country. It's like the library now gives me ebooks. It just seems super weird, but yeah, new, new technology, old technology. I don't need a paper book anymore. Sorry, guys. Yeah. All right, Dan, let's move on to our topic. All right, Dan. So I came across some really, really cool stuff this week. You may have heard of this. Have you heard of of Project Aristotle? No, tell me about it. So not too long ago, a group from Google, uh, Google's People Operations Unit, which um, I guess most places would be called the HR department. Yeah, that's a really creepy way of saying (laughs) that, but go on. Welcome. I'm actually reading the book, The Circle, right now. We operate these people. <laughs> uh, but, but they set out to answer a very specific question, um, an important question to them, and that is what makes a Google team effective? All right, so what they wanted to know is they have all these teams. There are hundreds of different teams within the company of Google, and they want to know why are some teams really effective and why are other teams less so? And, you know, being Google, they collect data on everything, not the least of which is probably their own employees, and so they analyzed tons and tons of data to try to get at the answer to that question. Why are some groups of people within their organization, when they put them together to work on a project, why do some succeed and others uh, less so? So let's, let's do the uh, scientific method here. You can probably make some hypotheses on this. Yeah, sure. I'm going to say that, oh gosh, you want some kind of diversity in the way they mm-hmm. think about problems. Maybe they have different backgrounds. So somebody understands business and somebody understands technology and uh, somebody can facilitate a conversation or something. Yeah, and you know, there actually are data out there that say that, that a diverse team is better than a non-diverse team. Okay, I'm going to guess that their communication styles have to match up or something. I don't, I don't know how I would define that, but you can imagine that if people are are talking over each other's heads and they don't understand or they have a lot of um, kind of aggressive, combative ways of interacting. That mm-hmm. could be bad. Well, I'm, I'm throwing stuff out there because yeah. I'm thinking like, here here's what I would go look for as a researcher. Um, so so how do they approach it? Yeah, well, it turns out the, the first thing you said was not as important. Okay, so they first looked at, okay, who are the people on the teams? And so... And this was the lowest hanging fruit. This was the easy thing to look at. All right, who's on the team? What are their skills? What are their background? Are they all um, technically trained in the area of the problem they're trying to solve? Are we bringing people in with lots of different skills and expertise? So this is basically going through resumes and saying, Bob worked in this type of work before. Sure. Uh, but what they found out was that that had, had no predictive value. And in fact, they could find multiple teams made up of nearly identical sets of people that were very different in their productivity. So it turned out it was not necessarily who is on the team that was the secret sauce to to how well the teams actually did. Okay, so you can't just hire a MBA to this team and, and improve productivity. It doesn't work like that. That's right. So, so they went back to the drawing board 
And what they what they realized was that it had less to do with the makeup of the team itself, but this thing that they called what are the team norms, right? So within the team, norm. <laughs> you know, I had to do it. Come on, yeah. saw that coming. No, <laughs> the number of people named Norm. <laughs> you do you, you actually any- <laughs> reacted before I got close enough to as say it. As soon as I said yeah. it, I saw it. Like, oh no! <laughs> oh well, you don't have a team norm. <laughs> We need a <laughs> Google is now putting out a nationwide call for hey norms. Guys, hey guys, I'm here. <laughs> Our effectiveness just went up. Is norm free from two to three on Thursdays? Uh, <laughs> um, so team norms, you have to have multiple norms. <laughs> so what they concluded was that that understanding and influencing these group norms were actually the key to improving the teams. All right, but they still didn't know what those norms were. Just that there was something going on in certain teams that made them successful. And the other thing that was actually really cool to the researchers was that teams that seemed to do well on one assignment usually did well on all the other assignments, and teams that usually failed at one thing tended to struggle at all the tasks they were given. So It's not even matching them with the right kind of work. It's like, if you're an effective team, you're an effective team, full stop. Yeah, it really did seem like there was something that distinguished the quote-unquote good teams from the dysfunctional groups, and it had a lot to do with how the teammates treated each other. So so said another way, if you have the right norms on your team or within your team, the right dynamic within your team, you can actually raise the collective intelligence of the group. However, if you have the wrong norms or the wrong um, ways or cultures within that team, you actually can really hobble and bring everybody down no matter how talented they are. This seems like a perfect place to uh, interject the fact that this seems like it would apply to a lab as much as it would to a Google product development team. I'm glad you said that, Dan, because that is exactly what I was thinking and exactly what made me really interested in reading about this because... We had no norms. <laughs> we we tried to hire a few. <laughs> it didn't work it out. It didn't work out. <laughs> I don't think I knew any anyone named Norm in grad school. Uh, I explained so much. If you I understand now, finally. If you have someone named Norm in your lab, <laughs> please email us at podcast LAP. Or okay. better yet, we want to talk to you if your name is Norm. Uh, I'll stop. I'll stop. Go ahead. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip to the punchline. And and so what they found was that there were these five five traits of a successful team. And we're going to go through these. And like you said, Dan, what I'd like our listeners to think about as we go through these is is think about labs, because that's what I thought about. You know, if I really thought on labs that were really productive, had really productive team members, had people who uh, seemed very engaged in the work, they really had these these five things, you know, for the most part. I mean, no, no team, no lab is perfect. Um, and labs that I know of, people I know of that were in situations that were, were challenging or struggling, there were some real dysfunctions or some of these areas were, were very weak. So what I want to start out doing is I want to ask five key questions and I want all of our listeners to, to really stop and think about your own lab or your own research group or the, your own team that you're part of and think about how you would answer these questions in that context. I'm going to quietly judge the Hello PhD <laughs> podcast team. Go ahead. <laughs> you could even think about your own lab in grad school, Dan. I, I try not to, but I will today. For <laughs> All you. right. So, so the first question, can we count on each other to do high quality work on time? All right. The second question, are goals, roles, and execution plans on our team clear? Three, are we working on something that is personally important for each of us? Number four, do we fundamentally believe that the work we're doing matters? 
And last, can we take risks on this team without feeling insecure or embarrassed? Okay, so if you if you answered no to one or more of these questions, chances are there might be some, some issues within your team. And, and you probably knew it. You know, you probably, there probably are some things that bug you about working in that group. So... All right, hopefully we'll go through these in a little more detail, yep. but I got to say from the outset, I was quietly judging the Hello PhD podcast team, which is just us. Mm-hmm. And I feel good about all of these, which is surprising because I can go down this list and I can say, yeah, I think Josh does put out high quality work. And, Not uh, necessarily on time. Well, the on time, we're working on it. We're <laughs> working, working on, on it, it. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we're working on something important to us and we believe what we're doing matters. So, so like I go down to this list and I feel pretty good about it in this context. Sure. And I can, I can think about my work now and I can think about my grad school experience. So, mm-hmm. so let's go through it. I think it's cool. Yeah, okay. So let's unpack these. So that, that first question, can we count on each other to do high quality work on time? So the first thing that, that Google found was that teams that were really successful had a real culture of dependability. So so team team members could really count on each other to get things done on time and meet expectations. Yeah, this is this is a morale killer if you get the opposite where you're waiting on Jim to finish the thing and he's like, "Oh yeah, um I couldn't get to that cuz excuse number one." And then then you watch the weeks tick by. And you're like, uh, Jim, we need this. And then you're tempted to do it, but you're kind of resentful because you don't feel like you should have. I don't. It, it's a it's a killer if this is not met. Yeah, I had a good a good friend. Um, this was when I was in graduate school, and they had these really really technically intensive experiments to do, and they always had to start really early in the morning to get them done. So they had to they'd have to team up in pairs to get these done. And so they had a schedule and they'd have to show up at 7.30 in the morning and start on these experiments. And really starting late meant they were going to have to be there late in the evening. And there was one particular postdoc in the lab who very consistently, it was, she'd be on the schedule and she just wouldn't show up on time. You know, she'd be an hour late or she'd call off at the last minute. And it really, you're right, it was really a morale killer and... You, know. you don't need to move on to the other four things after this. It's like we can't get our basic work yeah. done and we can't expect this person to do their part. So why should I do my part? You know what I mean? Like it leads it it breeds resentment, but it also breeds more laziness and poor quality work. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about this dependability thing and and I I don't think it's important just for impressing the boss. Like we want to get high quality work done. But really, and in a lab, especially where you're counting and depending on your lab mates, you know, to help with experiments or do lab chores, right? Like maybe you're counting on on uh, on Susie to make the PBS stock. Yeah, it's and, a eight point two x buffer. It's fine. It's close enough. Yeah, and and you know, especially if you have a, and I've seen this happen too, Dan. You have somebody who's not carrying their load, and the PI is either ignoring it or doesn't know what's going on. That's really frustrating for the other lab members as well. Yeah. So. Uh, hopefully you can you can check this box and that this is going well for you in your lab. Um, well, let's hear about number two. All right, so number two, this was the question: Are goals, roles, and execution plans on our team clear? So this has to do with the second thing they found that successful teams had, and that was structure and clarity. So high performing teams had clear goals and well defined roles within the group. You were going to split those cells, right? Did you? Did oh, it was. <laughs> oh, I was going to do that. I like we talked about it like last week. Wait, which cells? Yeah, they're dead. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> I mean, that's that's such a trivial example, but um, a lab is a, a machine, and everybody has to to do um, kind of mundane things, but also really important things to keep it working. 
And if there is any confusion about what your role is, uh, things just fall on the floor. Yeah, you know, I think this can be one of the biggest challenges with grad school for for a lot of people is in certain situations, this this lack of structure and this lack of clarity of, okay, what do I need to accomplish to be done? Or what do I need to be, what do I need to get done to start writing this paper? Because there are no, there's no finite. Yeah, it is is more individualistic too. Mm -hmm. It is your paper. It is not our paper oftentimes. Yeah. And I think a lot of this, I think a lot of this does come from the top. I think it comes from the PI to really set the tone and provide this structure and clarity. You know, I think this can be an important reason for a graduate student to really utilize their their committee. And I would actually, you know, I would encourage grad students to create this very structured framework for their own progress when they go into a committee meeting. So for example, let's say you're a fourth year graduate student, go into your committee meeting and say, okay, I think if I finish A, B, and C, and you have these very detailed A, B, and C, I think that will be enough for me to graduate. Right. And you know, likely they'll say, yeah, that sounds good. Or they might say, well, maybe instead of C, you should do C and D. Uh, or I don't think you need to do C. Sometimes that'll happen. And so what you've done is you're creating these very specific milestones that if I do X, then Y will happen. I think where a lot of grad students get into trouble, and even postdocs, is you kind of have these squishy goals. And so you never actually know when you've you've met them and when you're done and ready to move on to the next step. I know I personally, nothing demotivates me on a project more than if I don't know what my role is, if I don't know exactly what the task is I need to do, um, a lot of times you end up just spinning your wheels and not doing anything. I know I did. <laughs> All right, so so the third one was, are we working on something that is personally important for each of us? And so this has to do with meaning. The work has a personal significance to each member. Yeah, and it's not just, oh, I think I'm going to cure cancer, right? Mm-hmm. This is This is more like, I feel um, good at the end of the day that I uh, accomplished something that helped my lab mate, or I'm happy that I'm earning a paycheck to help my family. It's it's not necessarily just the, the broader impact in society. It's how do you derive uh, meaning and, and uh, significance in your work? And it sometimes it's seemingly trivial, but it's important to you. Yeah. One thing I tell, tell graduate students a lot, especially students who are just entering graduate school or early in their graduate school career, is I make sure they understand you will come to a point where your motivation wanes, right? You're going to reach a point where the experiments aren't working and you really just don't feel like you want to keep going anymore. But I think what can be really important is remembering why you came to grad school in the first place, right? Why did you want a PhD? Why did you start doing research? And it's important to think about that at the beginning because it's probably more in the forefront of your mind at the beginning before all the headaches and the frustrations set in. And I actually encourage students at the beginning of their PhD to even write that down. Like, why am I here? What initially motivated me to do this? Maybe Maybe you had a family member with cancer and that motivated you to get involved in, in cancer research. Hold on to that. Maybe just the idea of being a scientist is cool to you. Write that down. Whatever it is, when yeah, you hit the I, hard times. I like the intellectual freedom of exploring sure. questions that are interesting to me and I don't have to answer to the man every day and, and do what he tells me to do. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I like being on the forefront of knowledge. I like discovering something that no one else had discovered before. 
Uh, I really like pipetting. <laughs> so much fun. Pushing that little plunger down just brings me joy every time. Second stop, I just giggle. <laughs> uh, okay, number four is related to number three, but a little different. So number four is, do we fundamentally believe the work we're doing matters? And so we're talking about impact. So groups that are productive believe their work is purposeful and positively impacts the greater good. So in contrast to number three, which was, is this work important to me? Number four has to do with, do team members feel like this work matters to society, to other people in a more broad context? And this is where you may get some recognition when you publish in a journal um, that's important or relevant in your field, and you feel like you are advancing not just your own personal knowledge, but I'm advancing the knowledge of my colleagues and peers at other universities that care about this problem. Maybe you are making a, a much bigger impact in human health or uh, in the way we understand even the basic sciences. I think that's, it, it feels like very small steps, but scientists are making huge, huge changes very rapidly in the world. Yeah, and you know, as humans, that's just part of how we're wired. It's very hard for us to continue to stay motivated and want to do something if we feel like there's no point to it. Uh, isn't that the, the famous psychological study, right, where they asked someone to move the rocks one day, then they, the next day they said, oh, just move them back. And people were, even for a larger sum of money, they were uh, less willing to come back and move the rocks back when there seemed to be no point in doing it, I mean, e- to, even for money. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. You want, it, you want to have an impact. You want it to be meaningful at the end of the day. So that was four items, Josh. All right, so number five, and this was, this was the big one, Dan. So can we take risks on this team without feeling insecure or embarrassed? So this has to do with psychological safety. And so what psychological safety is, is a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. Have you been in that situation, Josh? Take, take the alternative, because I think um, that's the one that you'll feel. You have a question in, in one of your rotations, and you are afraid to ask. Because you think, you know, this is a stupid question, and if I ask this, then they're going to think I'm dumb, and they're, you know, I'm going to get that sarcastic response from the PI, and he's going to talk down to me in front of everybody. I better not ask. Yeah, I, I had a rotation, Dan, where in lab meeting, uh, <laughs> the PI would would do just that. You know, someone would ask a question that that he did not think was of a good question or of a well thought out question, and he would publicly dress down the, the grad student or the postdoc or, or whoever. And so as a rotation student, what did I do? Kept my mouth shut. Yeah, you either learned it by doing it once or you learned it by watching somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, and the, I think the notion here, and, and it's, we should highlight the fact, this, number five here, is the, the best predictor of team success. Mm-hmm. Is there an openness and an inclusiveness and a, a willingness to allow others to take risks and to fail without squashing them. But in in this world of psychological safety, um, you know, there's a description that we want to avoid looking ignorant, Mm -hmm. right? So don't ask any questions. I want to avoid looking incompetent. So I will never admit when I made a mistake on something, I'm going to try and cover that up. I'm not going to admit that I'm weak in something. I, I can't really do these calculations, but I can't tell you that because I'm going to look incompetent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't want to be intrusive, so I'm not going to give you my ideas for how we should do this experiment because I don't want to interrupt the flow of what you're saying, and I don't want to be negative. So, you know, if you have an idea for an experiment and I see some holes in it, 
I don't want to be that guy that's like always dumping on your your experiments. So I'm just going to keep quiet in the background. Yeah, it could be. It's sort of like a, especially I think when, when students are just starting out, like, oh, well, you're you're the faculty member. I don't want to insult you or I don't want to disrespect you by disagreeing with you. Well, people like, yeah, we like yes men. We like people who agree with us. Agreeableness is one of the factors that goes along with uh, having friends and, and being well-respected in a group. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, the, the flip side of all of this is is by doing these things or, or by being in an environment where at least you, if your personal experience is you don't feel psychologically safe to speak up, to ask questions, to offer ideas, the way you're going to be perceived is you're not actually helping yourself by, by holding back. You're actually going to be perceived as not being interested, not being engaged. And I've, I've seen this with a lot of students who do who do rotations, and then they're surprised when they, they get negative uh, a negative evaluation of the rotation. And oftentimes, the reason is just this. They, you know, they were trying to be respectful or they were trying to, um, you know, not let it be known things they were struggling with. Um, but maybe they were very interested, but the fact that they didn't ask questions, they didn't um, engage, made it seem like they weren't at all interested. Um, yeah, and I think the reason Google was interested in this part of the question and the reason that your lab should be interested is because if I don't speak up and I don't challenge your experimental design, then we our science is worse, right? We we make conclusions that we can't support and it takes us, you know, three months to come to those conclusions, but we could have avoided them entirely if we had had somebody say at the beginning, this isn't the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. And and the question isn't are you willing to? The question is are the group's norms mm-hmm. supportive of this? So you could be a maverick and, and very cavalier. I'm going to go out and tell them what I think. Um, but you will be shut down immediately if you don't have the support of the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where this comes from. That's where this starts. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's the importance of having this discussion and why I wanted to talk about this on the show. If we talk about this a lot. The individuals out there, maybe you're just starting grad school or you're looking for a postdoc. And we've talked quite a bit about things to look for when you're choosing a lab to join. And so I think this provides some really a really important framework or at least some really important questions to ask yourself when you're going through a lab rotation or you're on a postdoc interview, uh, or even if you're just talking to a PI, you know, doing an informational interview have these questions in your mind and start checking off like, okay, do I think, does this environment, uh, does it seem like, um, and I'll say actually from the psychological safety point of view, let's say you go meet with a faculty member for the first time and you, you go meet with them for 30 minutes in their office. How did you feel? Did you feel really comfortable expressing yourself and asking questions and asking follow-ups? And because I think that, I think that's really important. Your gut feeling, your ability to relate to a person. And in some cases it has nothing to do with, with them being a good or bad person. But if you don't personally feel comfortable uh, being open and expressing yourself around that person, then that's probably a red flag. Yeah, I think this starts with the PI. And and so when you go and do that interview, you can get a read on that. Uh, if you notice yourself holding back, um, afraid to ask, you know, why did, why did you do that experiment again? I see what you did, but I don't understand how it fits in. If you're afraid to ask that because you think that, that they're going to bite your head off over it, or talk down to you, there's an indicator for you and, mm-hmm. and pay attention to those feelings. Yeah. So, so knowing all this, Dan, so one question I had was, okay, I think this is certainly applicable for people who are in the process of choosing a lab. 
But let's say we have listeners out there, which I imagine we probably do, who are already in a lab. Maybe they're a second, third, fourth year grad student. They're a postdoc. You know, they're in the middle of a team. And maybe they were asking themselves some of these questions and thought, oh, you know what? A couple of these, our lab really is a little dysfunctional in some of these areas. Are there some things that they can do to help their team maybe transition into a more effective team? No. (laughs) Sorry to put you on the spot there. But, you know, let's say you're okay. Our team, we're okay in some ways, but got some people who aren't as dependable or feel like the, the goals aren't totally clear. So knowing this, and actually we'll put a link to this in the show notes, but you can, you can go to Google site. They, they call this rework. So there's a, uh, there, there's a link we'll post uh, where they, they listed all these things and more information about the studies they did. What do you think about just bringing this up to your PI or maybe within your, your lab say, you know, I've, I was reading this, uh, this research Google did on teams that were really effective because I imagine most PIs probably want their lab to be very productive and very efficient, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of these start with the PI. Mm-hmm. I think the tone that the PI sets in lab meeting and journal club and, and just being in the lab determines whether everybody else uh, responds in, mm-hmm. in a positive way. If the PI is absentee, and Jim never gets his stuff done mm-hmm. and never says anything about it, what I read from that is the PI doesn't care about dependability. Mm-hmm. And so why should I worry about, you know, why should I be the one that's breaking my neck to get mm-hmm. things done? Yeah, I guess maybe the irony is it depends how how strong of a culture of psychological safety you have, whether or not you feel able to bring in <laughs> this article with your group because um, I can really imagine how cool it'd be maybe in group meeting if you're like hey everybody I was reading this here are these five things how do you feel like we're doing in these five areas and having a, a conversation yeah so we'll link to it but they offer a checklist that uh, or kind of a questionnaire that you can go through and ask yourself you, you as a team can respond how are we doing on this and you can probably do it in a semi-anonymous manner to find out how people are really feeling about these five things um, on the psychological safety perspective specifically there are things that you can do and probably more importantly things your pi can do to improve the feelings of psychological safety so number one um you know if you are a pi or if you are leading a team frame frame this work as a learning problem not as an execution problem so you don't want situations where it's like well josh just can't do immunofluorescence so we've got to give it to somebody else it's it's has to be a situation of let's sit together and figure out your technique because um, there's probably one step that nobody explained to you and we can just help you figure it out mm-hmm. and so you're going to get better on that this, yeah in some in some ways Dan that's kind of like growth mindset versus fixed mindset right not just well you yeah. can't do this you're but, terrible at this technique versus hey let's you know you're having trouble with this let's help you get there yeah my PCRs never work but it's probably because. I don't have good pipette technique or I'm touching my pipette tips on things that I shouldn't or my buffer is bad. But it's something that it's, it's not because I'm a terrible person. I just can't do PCRs it's mm-hmm. because there's some way that I'm doing this that I could do better. Mm-hmm. So the second thing you can do uh, if you want to improve psychological safety is to acknowledge your own fallibility. So when you're in this meeting with um, maybe your, your lab members, you say, you know, I'm going to present how I am approaching this experiment but I may have missed something. So can you pay really close attention and tell me what you see? So you're, you're actively inviting people 
and you're saying, this isn't perfect. I don't expect this to be like, you know, God gave Moses the tablets with these experiments on it. It's, Mm -hmm. I expect there to be problems here and I need you as a team to help me with this. Mm -hmm. And, And the last thing is model curiosity. Ask a lot of questions. Ask questions that may be obvious to everybody else. Ask stupid questions. Because when you do that as the leader of that team, everybody else is going to feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And chances are they had the same or other questions as well. Or even stupider questions that they will now ask. <laughs> there aren't no stupid questions, just stupid people asking questions. Lots of those. I'll cut that out. And you know, Dan, I really think if, if you find yourself in a situation in a lab where you're feeling like you're, you're not feeling safe to, to ask the questions that you have, um, and if it's keeping you from really understanding your project or understanding what you need to be doing and want to be doing, I mean, again, this is holding you back from the whole reason you came to grad school. I mean, ideally, what you're supposed to accomplish is you're learning to be a scientist, and you can't do that effectively if you don't feel free and open to seek out the information you don't know and to ask questions. And so I think it's perfectly reasonable, if you feel that way, to say to your PI, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just be up front with you. I don't feel comfortable asking you questions because when I do, I'm afraid you're going to think I'm stupid or that you don't value what I have to say. And my guess is most people, most people are, are nice human beings. They probably didn't realize that you felt that way. No, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think as a PI, you may have been rewarded in the past for being a know-it-all and being pushy and being commandeering and putting your opinion out um, but that is not a great way to lead a team. Mm-hmm. And so the way you got there and the thing you need to do now are different. So I think getting that feedback is going to be really valuable mm-hmm. and hopefully they respond in a positive way. Yeah, and I think 90% of the time they will. But, you know, and if you happen to put yourself out there and express that that's your experience, that you don't feel psychologically safe um, in that environment and they respond negatively to that or shut you down in that when you're being transparent in that way, run away. Yeah, this is awesome. I, I think this this concept of psychological safety and a few of the other things we talked about should be core in our discussions going forward on the podcast and also the way that people are making decisions about how they choose a lab, either as a grad student or as a postdoc. I think this is really, it's fascinating research. I like having the words to use to describe something that we've all experienced. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Like I mentioned, we'll post this on the show notes, these five items. And um, all else fails, hire some more norms. <laughs> be all set. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you have some feedback on some of these things, if you'd like to tell us about your own personal experience in grad school, your own lab and team, um, and some of the ways your team gets these things right, or maybe some of the ways they get them wrong. And especially, man, if you happen to see some of the dysfunction in your team based on some of these items, and you address some of these things in the lab or bring it up, we would love to know how that goes. That would be really interesting to hear about. Yeah, if you've been able to turn a corner on some of these things, that'd be, that'd be a great example for other people. Absolutely. All right, Dan, do you have an etymology puzzle for us this week? I almost always do. The clue last week, this hardened substance has allowed ancient and modern cities to grow together in travel and trade. What do you got? I'm pretty sure I know this one, and not because I just read the answer on the show notes, but I had it last week. You did. You had it almost immediately. Concrete. Concrete. You got it. Coming from the Latin, uh, which means to grow together. So con together and crescere to grow. Invented basically in Roman times, I think. Is that right? 
<laughs> you're just, you're just shaking me, your head. I don't know. Yeah, so a listener actually sent me an article recently. They have studied ancient Roman concrete, which has been able to stand up for thousands of years, even under seawater. And there's an article in Science Magazine about why our concrete breaks apart in 20 years in normal conditions and Roman concrete can hold up that long. I'll post it in the show notes because it's pretty cool. Well, that with some of these these ancient structures, I mean, is this what they're made of? They are. And and specifically the ones that are in contact with seawater, um, the type of volcanic ash that the Romans used in their concrete reacts over hundreds of years to form a type of mineral that is uh, it, it actually exchanges mineral ions with the seawater over hundreds of years, and it forms this super strong concrete uh, that that has lasted for centuries. Wouldn't you like that in our infrastructure that's crumbling and our bridges that are falling? Well, oh, it is kind of interesting because I, I, I think about this from time to time if I'm, I'm near the coast and I'm driving over a bridge that goes across you know an expanse of seawater, and they have these concrete pylons. And I always like, think, uh, like, huh, I wonder how those hold up. Because, you know, seawater tends to be very corrosive and a harsh environment uh, to materials over time. And so I always wondered that about these bridges. But maybe they're getting stronger for Absolutely. using the right concrete. Yeah, I'll post the, art- the articles. It's, it's a pretty cool science. So to grow together concrete, let me give you the clue for next week. The clue is... Let's have a meeting where we present posters, give research talks, and drink together. It's not just a statement. That is a clue, Josh. You look a little confused. <laughs> it sounds read, amazing. Re- read it one more time. Let's have a meeting where we present posters, give research talks, and drink together. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. Randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. Thanks for that. You are almost always dependable with that etymology puzzle. Nearly always. (laughs) Well, you know what? If you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We definitely love the feedback and it helps listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd, and we would appreciate the beer money so we don't have to keep drinking this Trader Joe's double IPA week after week. Technically, you had about half a beer, I can see from here, <laughs> which is like one beer. <laughs> it's, like, nor- you it's like 38 cents You could save beer. that for tomorrow. Just like uh, put something on top of that glass. You'll be all set. <laughs> I might do that. I might do that. All right, Dan. It's been great as always. Uh, go get you some Eclipse glasses, and I'll see you next time. See you then. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> So what's going down now? My blood alcohol level. <laughs> Suds, do your work. Morning, everyone. Hey! Oh. What are you up to, Norm? My ideal weight if I were 11 feet tall. <laughs> Have dinner, buddy? What'd you like, Norm? A reason to live. Ooh. Keep them coming. Have dinner, everybody? Hey! Oh. How does it be a sound, Norm? I don't know, coach. I usually finish them before they get a word in. <laughs> Evening, everybody. No! Norman? What's shaking, Norm? All four cheeks and a couple of chins, coach. <laughs> Evening, everybody. Hey, Norm. What's going down, Mr. Peterson? 
my cheeks on this bar stool. Afternoon, everybody. Hey, Norm, how's the world been treating you? Like a baby treats a diaper. Hey, guess what, everybody? Little Frederick beat Clifford Dart. Frazier? Uh-oh. What are you doing here? I didn't give my son to you so you could run off and spend the day in a bawdy house. Yes, well, my, my little chopped salad. I mean, we just got here, what, ten minutes ago? You're lying. Well, yes, I'm lying, but... Uh... <laughs> I, I thought that Frederick might enjoy himself. Enjoy himself in a bar? He's 11 months old. What kind of values can he learn here? Well, I, I thought the place had a lot to offer. Oh, please. He'll never learn to speak in this environment. Afternoon, everybody. Mom! 